a Tuskegee Airman, an amateur racer, a lover of cars, a long life still lived. This week on Tempest. Welcome to Tempest, a series that explores the true and complicated and sometimes hilarious and sometimes heartbreaking stories behind cars and their people. And this week, boy, do I have a person. But I need to preface this. Tempest is all about stories, but this episode, it isn't a story. Not really. This is a life. Not a whole life, not even most of it. Glimpses. Moments. Memories. And they belong to a man named Jim Barber. I wrote about Jim for Jalopnik last year. It was a profile of sorts, one that touched on his service in the United States military. Jim is a documented, original Tuskegee Airman who served during World War II. He went on to become involved in the world of auto racing, not only as an amateur driver, but as a highly respected official and leader for a number of races and organizations. There is a lot more to Jim than was covered in that essay, more than will be covered in this episode. When you live a life as remarkable, interesting, and astonishing as Jim's, you need more than an essay to paint the whole picture, more than a podcast episode. Jim is 93 years old now, and he's still going, still living. Documented original Tuskegee Airman, computer pioneer, jazz and big band musician, husband, father, and an individual who loves cars. My intention with this episode is for it to be a companion of sorts to that Jalopnik essay, and hopefully even more written material about Jim. But more than that, I want it to be a way for you, the listener, to be able to sit with Jim and just hear a few of his many, many stories. Life may have its big moments, deaths, births, weddings, those kinds of things, but life is mostly the smaller things, the stuff, honestly, that usually has to be cut from things like essays. But when you go visit a man like Jim and spend a few days with him like I've done, the big stuff gives way to the small stuff, and you reminisce. So that's what this episode is. Anecdotes and memories and moments from the life of Jim Barber. We're going to take an early break now and then dive right in. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's only one place to start, and that's the beginning. April 23rd, 1926. Uh, you said you were born where again? Dayton, Ohio. Well, I was born in Cincinnati, but that was because my folks were on the way home to Dayton. From They had been down to Kentucky at my, my grandmother's farm, and uh, <laughs> they got to Cincinnati, and I was born. <laughs> so uh, I was born in Cincinnati, but my home was really Dayton. So you were almost born in the car. Almost. <laughs> that seems that seems fitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. We're going to get to the car stuff, but first I want to skip ahead about 17 years to when World War II was raging. I graduated from high school in 43, but I was only 17. Jim wanted to join the fight, but as a 17-year-old, he was too young to serve. And Jim had in mind exactly how he wanted to serve, as a pilot. So uh, I 
I enlisted, but they they had uh, a pre pre aviation cadet program where you you signed up, and what it did was prevent you from being drafted. So I signed up for that. The Navy had a pilot program, but as Jim is an African American, they wouldn't accept him. The Air Force was not yet in existence, so he went to the U.S. Army Air Corps. Dayton, Ohio, has Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and uh, I went out there and enlisted. But rather than simply wait around till his 18th birthday, Jim, who had already tore down and rebuilt cars, put his knack for mechanics to use. I worked at the Wright Wright Patterson Air Force Base and became a crew chief on a P-51. And and here I am, a kid just out of high school, but there were no men. They were all gone in the service. And uh, I got to be a crew chief, and it was... It was a great thrill for me to, to work, and I got on the midnight shift, and I would go out there and on the flight line and sit and turn the radio on and listen to all the airplanes and the people talking and all that, you know, and, and imagine that I was flying this thing. <laughs> As a kid, I was doing all that, you know. Uh, it was just a thrill for me to be able to sit in that. Working on P-51s and their massive Packard-built supercharged V-12 engines, the year slipped by and Jim turned 18. When I became 18, uh, they called me to be accepted, I guess you'd say. And uh, when I got there, there was this room full of people, and they called everybody's name but mine. And finally, uh, they, this um, little lieutenant came running up with a book, a little tiny little book in his hand, and he was so embarrassed, and he was saying, you know, we didn't know that you were Negro, and and we can't accept you right now. We have to get permission from Congress for you to be accepted as a, as a pilot trainee. And I was... I was just crushed, you know. I I'd been through all this and waited, and, all, and here I am in a room full of people. Well, they'd all gone, and I was the only one left. He he said by the by the spelling of your name and and all that, we didn't know, and uh, so we just assumed that you were okay to take in now. So you'll have to wait. You have to go back home and wait, and we'll call you when when we get permission. And so, the young man who was already a crew chief at Wright-Patterson, who had asked to serve his country, waited for special permission. And finally it came. Jim started out at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis, or Indiana. But then for him to continue basic training, they sent him to Keesler Field, Mississippi. Here, Jim says, That was a trip. (laughs) Uh, uh, Taking the train down there, on the way, I was in this nice comfortable train car and we got to uh, I think it was Cincinnati or Louisville I forget which and I had to get off of that train car and go get in another car which was on the front part of the train it was not air conditioned and had we could open the windows and we opened the windows and of course all the soot and cinders and dirt from the train from the engine came back and blew into that car so we had to close the windows and uh, that was uh, foretelling of what, what I was going to experience for the next few months <laughs> until I got uh, into training. So what was he in for? He gives me an example. He and a buddy had a free weekend, so they decided to go somewhere. Their destination? A town they'd chosen for its unique name. Uh, 
Pascagoula. Pascagoula. That, that's a weird name. We'll go see what this is all about. Well, we went to town, to Biloxi, and uh, in Biloxi, uh, the, the, the bus station was a, a drugstore. And uh, we went in and we wanted a Coke. They wouldn't sell us a Coke. They had a, 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 a fountain stand or a counter but they wouldn't sell us one there because we would have had to drink out of the glasses. So we wanted one out of the machine, and we, they wouldn't give us change to get one out of the machine. So we didn't get a Coke. Didn't get a Coke, and they didn't get something else either. When the bus showed up, Jim says... It was all loaded and full of people standing in the aisle, but the back of the bus was empty. And the driver said he was not going to make all those people get off the bus so that we could get on. So we didn't get on the bus, and we didn't go to Pascagoula. I never got to Pascagoula. (laughs) This wasn't an isolated incident. He tells me another one. It was an overnight trip. And uh, I got to Montgomery. Uh, We had to change trains to go from there to Tuskegee. The train station was was at a lower level. So I had all this big bulky baggage of stuff, all your belongings, uh, going from one army base to another. They announced on the PA that they were going to be serving coffee and donuts up on the track area to all military people. So there was some lady who was sitting next to me, her blue hair and all that, you know, and she was very nice. We'd been talking and... She'd asked me where I was from, and I told her and where I was going and all that. And uh, she, she was very pleasant. And um, I asked her if she would watch my bag for me. I said, I'd hate to carry this thing up to the top, and, and I'll bring you a coffee back and all that, you know. Oh, sure, I'll watch your bag. So uh, I went up there, and all the other guys that were going to Tuskegee that had been on the train with me, uh, he said, where, where were you? And I said, I was in the train station. And I said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, I was. And I said, we didn't see you. And I said, well, I was sitting there talking to this lady. And they said, oh, man, you were in the wrong train station. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be in that train station. <laughs> and I said, well, nobody told me. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Jim laughs easily about these incidents. To him, they were more puzzling than anything. All of this was segregation? Yes. And I hadn't experienced that in Dayton, Ohio. I guess we were just above the line, <laughs> and, and I didn't have all that. I didn't know all that stuff. Nobody told me. And uh, so that was all new for me. I was just confused and uh, didn't understand it. I mean, it didn't make sense to me. My selfish desire here is to express outrage, to point out the blatant injustice. But it's not my story, it's Jim's. And he makes it clear to me that he does not want his experiences to fuel anger. The historical facts of the Tuskegee Airmen reflect the racist official policies of the U.S. government. It came to be as a result of segregation. But for Jim, the Tuskegee Airmen as a group became so much more, not only emblematic of valor, but as an organization for the hard work they've done to help others. Not so much about the, uh, even even I just gave you the segregationist part of it. 
that to me is not the significance of the, of the Tuskegee Airmen. Yes, we all went through that, but that's over with uh, in my mind. And uh, we should be talking about the the good things like the scholarship funds and the things that they're doing with the young people nowadays. Um, that's the way I feel about it. At Tuskegee, Jim thoroughly dedicated himself to becoming a pilot, fearlessly. Oh, no, I wasn't afraid. I, I remember one time I was in a steerman, which is a biplane, old biplane, and I decided I wanted to see how high I could go. And I just kept going up and up and up and up and up, and I looked way down there, and I could see a B-25 going by, way down. It looked like a little airplane below me, and I thought, I better go back down. <laughs> I'm pretty high up here, and I don't know about oxygen and all that stuff. I better go back down. So I did. But I wasn't afraid. Perhaps it was his steely nerves which helped him survive, though not unscathed, a harrowing flight and landing. I had just soloed a few days before an unnamed hurricane came through Tuskegee. The, 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 the biplanes that we were flying had no radio control uh, contact with the tower. We only had radios that talked from front to back. And they told us that if any time they ever wanted to get in touch with us, they would put out smoke pots. And that would mean that we were to come land. Well, I took off on a bright, sunshiny day, and I went around the field, and I happened to look down, and the wind was blowing smoke across the field. And I thought, wow, smoke pots. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> I better get back down there. Well, as I said, I had just soloed not too long before that, a couple days, as a matter of fact. I, I did the right things, set up my traffic pattern, and, and was headed into the, into the wind to land, and the darn plane wouldn't go down. The wind was so strong, this plane just hung up there, you know, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea how to get down. I tried pumping the stick back and forth. I tried cutting the throttle. I, I did everything I could think of. There weren't any brakes. <laughs> and I mean, there were brakes, but they only worked on the ground. <laughs> I finally found that by every time I pumped the stick forward and back, the plane would go down a little bit. So I did that. And I wasn't moving forward very much at all. I was wondering if I was going to make it to the field. And I, to, to make a long story short, I did make it to the field and I did land the airplane. His plane was on the ground, but his troubles were far from over. The field was empty, and with no one to walk his wings, Jim was left to taxi and park on his own. The final step would be for him to lock his controls. By now, the weather had gone from bad to brutal. And the, the wind was so strong that the sand was, this is an open cockpit plane, the sand was hurting my face. So I leaned down below the edge of the plane to, to lock the controls. <clears throat> when I raised up again, I realized I was moving. And there were two other airplanes there that were moving also. And I didn't know who was moving which direction. I just knew that the three of us were moving and it wasn't good. We were moving in the same, uh, to a point. <laughs> And the three planes were headed toward a building and, and gaining speed rapidly. Uh, 
his, this guy's plane tail went into the door. My plane hit his plane, and this other plane hit my plane. And the three of us were a big pile of mess right in front of this building. And you really hit it hard. <coughs> As a matter of fact, we hit it so hard that it hurt my back, and I have had back problems ever since. Back problems is an understatement. It caused nerve damage, which was so severe, one of his legs became paralyzed shortly thereafter. Fortunately, this was just temporary. Meanwhile, time marched on, and so did the war, reaching its conclusion in 1945, while Jim was still in the midst of training. Jim never let go of his dream to become a pilot. The Army, looking at the Nets' ranks, tried to remove Jim and his peers from the flight program. Jim fought back and was reinstated. Then, they discontinued the flight officer program, which would have seen him demoted to the rank of private. So Jim got out on the retrenchment program, only to have the newly formed Air Force come to his house and ask him to report to Texas so he could complete his training and fly bombers. Jim was thrilled. But just as he was about to leave for Texas, the Air Force gave him new orders. Report to Battle Creek, Michigan for surgery to repair his back. It would not be a simple procedure, and it would consume precious time. Jim resisted, but it was of no use. He went to Battle Creek and had the operation, which helped but didn't fully fix anything. And with that, his time in the military was over. I wish I didn't have to rush through all of that to summarize it into a single short paragraph. For one thing, his time in and out of the military in those post-war years was anything but neat. For another, it's a delight to hear Jim tell the stories, to explain how he went from being a pilot trainee to being a civilian employee who is transferring intelligence captured from the Nazis onto key punch cards. But that's not what this episode is designed to do. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's not meant to sum things up, as tempting as that is. For instance, I want to say exactly what I think of Jim in his service, that he's brave and fearless, that being injured in training makes no difference to me. I think he's a hero. That's how I want to sum it up. Hero. In fact, I did say all that. Not just right now, but I said it to him. But Jim isn't comfortable with that word, hero. There were all these pilots who had been to Italy and and, and were heroes. I wasn't one of those guys. He says he isn't a Tuskegee Airman like the ones portrayed in movies like Red Tails. He just happened to be at a particular place at a particular time. Well, I'm a Tuskegee Airman that way. Not not because I flew in Italy and did all that heroic stuff, you know. Still, he along with every other documented original Tuskegee Airman received a Congressional Gold Medal. Seems like the kind of thing heroes get. But who am I to say? Coming up next after the break, Cars. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It would be impossible to ever overstate how much of a car enthusiast Jim Barber is. If you took away his military service, his decades as a pioneer in the computer industry, which sadly I can't even get to for this podcast, his passion and decades playing music, you'd still have an utterly fascinating man worth profiling. He's a charter member of the National Hot Rod Association. He became a board member of the Sports Car Club of America, started countless car clubs, 
officiated countless races, and was the first-ever chief steward of the world-famous Ferrari Challenge. But beneath all those accomplishments and honors, Jim just loves cars. Always has. Perhaps it started with his father. My dad was interested in cars, uh, but he wasn't a uh, fanatic about it like I became. But he loved good cars. He had an Auburn, for example, and he had a Packard. Or maybe he got it from his uncle, who took him out on a drive when Jim was just a boy. We got home, and I was so excited, and I was telling my dad, Uncle John went so fast, the, the wind was blowing the windshield wipers that were going so fast. We were doing 60 miles an hour, Dad. <laughs> that was fast in those days, you know. <laughs> Before long, Jim's dad was letting him drive the busy, well, busy if you were a chicken at least, streets. <laughs> you know, I ever see a chicken in the highway? They run all over the place. So I'm driving and this chicken came out on the road and, and I'm trying to miss the chicken. And my dad says, kill the chicken, kill the chicken, don't kill us. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Dayton, Ohio. It was a good place to be if you were growing up a car fanatic. And I remember uh, in Dayton, the cars would, uh, would come out every September. <clears throat> and I was a little kid. I was down there every September. And I'd collect the, the brochures that they had. You know, they gave you wonderful brochures. They were, they were works of art. And uh, I collected them. Jim put his love for cars to good use, and he got work parking them. Uh, I mean, I got to the point where after, in my later years in high school, I ran the parking lot when the owner was, he, he was a playboy. And uh, he liked to run out and drink beer and chase girls and all that. And, and he'd just leave me to run the parking lot, you know, and so I, park, I drove all kinds of cars. And Funny story about parking cars in Dayton. It's like one guy said to me one time when he heard I was from Dayton, Ohio, he said, I suppose you knew the Wright brothers. And I said, yep, I did. <laughs> well, I knew one of them, Orville Wright, parked his car in the parking lot where I parked cars. That blows people away when I say, yeah, I knew him. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> I'm older than dirt. <laughs> he parked cars as a profession, but as a hobby, he and his buddies drag raced and customized their cars. These weren't just activities limited to high school. Even when he was in the service and after he was out, he kept at it, never dabbling. Back in those days, we had the custom cars. I started clubs, hot rod clubs and custom car clubs. And I was always the president. And no matter where I went, I was the president of these clubs. Jim's had many cars, and we'll get to that, but it was one of these custom cars that was his most memorable. I had a car of my own, which was, had, I mean, I'm notorious for that car. It was, a, it was a 1950 Chevrolet convertible, which I completely redid the engine, six-cylinder, but it would beat the V8s, and Cadillac in 49 had the big fins on the back. I bought a pair of brass ones, the size for a Chevrolet, and had them grafted onto the body of this Chevrolet. And the body of the Chevrolet looked like a Cadillac. And so when I got through with this, I had the Cadillac emblem on the trunk. It looked like a little Cadillac. <laughs> and it would go faster than the average car, you know. Jim had another American beast he used to drag against his buddies with, a big Chrysler V8 with almost 200 horsepower. When a friend of his bought an Austin Healey 100 and asked if he wanted to race, 
Jim could hardly contain his laughter. I figured my big 180-horsepower car against this little thing he's got, this little off-meal four-cylinder. I figured there'd be no contest. Well, we got out on the strip, and uh, he blew my doors off. <laughs> so uh, I, I got kind of bitten by the bug of that little car, you know. The bug bit him in a big way. I, I've got a letter here where I'm a member, I've been a member of Sports Car Club of America for over 55 years. And it's only 75 years old, the Sports Car Club of America. So I'm really a a charter member, you might say. Sports car. These days, that's just shorthand for a smaller, quicker coupe. You've got sports cars, sedans, SUVs, trucks, you know. Doesn't seem like a particularly daring or unique thing to say you like sports cars. But those days, it was different. Even for people who were into cars, like the people in Jim's Hot Rod and Custom Car Clubs, sports cars were just kind of odd. They didn't know what it was. What's that funny-looking little car, you know? And uh, it, they, they just didn't know what it was, and they didn't, they didn't pay much attention to them. Um, the sports car appealed to Jim on multiple levels. Yes, they were fast, but there was more to it than that. I wasn't a speed demon as such, but I'd like to go fast. Um... And I, I was intrigued by the, the mechanics of going fast. It wasn't just the, the going fast that was, that was intriguing to me. It was the ability to go fast, what you had to do to go fast, what you had to do to the engines and to the, to the automobile itself to, to go fast and to handle. That was, I learned, it was important too. Before long, Jim was getting his hands on all kinds of sports cars, Alfa Romeos, Triumphs, Austin Healey's, and he loved getting to know how differently they all drove. And living there in Rome, New York, I had carved out a little back road of of my own choosing for uh, practice. (laughs) And every car I got, I'd take it on that series of roads out in the country, and I'd just have a ball. (laughs) <laughs> I learned with that Triumph, for example, that uh, you couldn't go through a turn the same way twice. It just was not a car that was, uh, that was predictable. <laughs> but other cars, as time went by and I got other cars, the most intriguing car was the uh, Alfa Romeo. Uh, it looked like it was going to scrape the door handles, but uh, it didn't. And uh, it would lift the inside wheel right up off the ground. And you'd go around on three wheels, but you'd, you'd go around. <laughs> Jim became an avid amateur race car driver, driving in SCCA events all over the country except for the South. As he told me, I figured there was no point in inviting trouble. He loved racing, though it wasn't the safest sport. Like the time when his Austin Healey caught some air off a hump on the track and came down on a tire that was low in pressure. And uh, that tire let go just at that time. It was like putting a big brake on that one wheel. And uh, it catapulted the car up in the air. And I did a, a, a spin, a total spin in the air, and came down on the back of the Austin Healey. And then did a uh, tumble down sideways down the track and wound up on the infield of the the course right side up. Fearing the worst, his friends at the track raced to the infield where Jim sat slumped in his wrecked Austin Healey. 
I guess I must have been knocked out for just a second or two. And and I knew all those guys, uh, the corner workers. Uh, I had my head down, and when I raised my head, I was surrounded by guys, and their eyes were big as saucers, and they were all, and I started laughing, you know. And they said, oh, a heck of a guy you are. You scare us to death, and they sit here and laugh at us. And I said, well, if you could see all your eyes around here, you'd laugh too, you know. And I didn't realize I was hurt at all, and I decided I was going to get out of the car, and they said, no, no, you're, you sit right there. We've got uh, the, the uh, medics coming to check you over. And I said, but I'm okay. But he wasn't okay. He'd broken his arm and a sternum, too. Uh, they, they took me in, and everybody was so solemn and quiet and in, in, in the emergency room. And this, this one doctor came over to me, and he says, you look pretty physical. He said, do you do and participate in any other activities, sports activities? And I said, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I smoke a lot, and I get a lot of exercise. <laughs> the smoking. <laughs> and, of course, everybody cracked up in the, in the emergency room. <laughs> and then it, it loosened up, and all the tension was gone. <laughs> If you haven't noticed, Jim has a way of laughing in the face of most any adversity. Except, that is, when it came to the brand new Nomex racing suit, which he'd worn for the first time that day. The doctor came to me and he said, you've broken your arm, i got to look at it. And he said, he's getting ready to cut it. He made about two snips. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I just got this suit. <laughs> you can cut my arm off, but don't cut the suit. That stuff's expensive. <laughs> this was the way it was with Jim. Laughter and a little bit of danger. Didn't matter if he ended up on a podium or in the infield. I reminds me of a doctor in, in, in Minnesota. He told me, he says, why don't you do what I do? He says, you know, your car is like a blue streak out there and then something breaks and you're off on the side and, and you don't, don't finish all the time. He says, and I always finish. And I said, but Angelo, you always run at the back of the pack. <laughs> You don't really race. You just drive, uh, and, and I'm not doing that. I'm I'm out there to try to win if I can. If I can't, if if I if my car doesn't break, I'm going to win. You know. <laughs> and in your case, you're never going to win. <laughs> Ultimately, it was never about winning for Jim, anyway. I was not uh, I was not the kind of driver that went after the top trophy all the time. Success is this, is defined by goals, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if your goal was to have fun, then how successful were you? Oh, I was very successful in that in that case because I had fun all the time. I never found it a chore racing. It was always fun. I sat with Jim for days, recording his stories, and as far as I can tell, there are two big wins that really stand out in his mind. The first, well, this one wasn't even on a racetrack. He was working for UNIVAC at the time, living in Potomac, Maryland, commuting to D.C. This would have been the late 60s. Every morning when I went to work, I had to blend into this beltway traffic and get on the beltway. And and there was a a blend lane. And I had a Corvair, turbo Corvair, which was a decent car, but it didn't have the power that I would like to have had. So uh, one morning, some woman just kept me right over there right down to where the lane ended and I had to stop to wait for somebody else to let me in and I got so upset. I mean, I was furious. Finally, he made it to work, 
but he had other things on his mind. And I told my secretary, I'll be back shortly. Uh, I gotta make run an errand. And I went to the Chevy dealer. <laughs> and I said, I wanted to see the Corvettes. One of the Corvettes he showed Jim would turn out to be one of Jim's favorite cars. Uh, it was a bright red Corvette with, with off-road exhaust and all that. Nobody had wanted it because people who wanted the performance stuff didn't want the special leather upholstery and the special radio and the air conditioning and all that. And the people who wanted that stuff didn't want the performance stuff. I wanted both. <laughs> Next morning, I was going to go into Univac. I got to that same blend-in lane, and I came down there sideways, <laughs> just roaring, you know. <laughs> Everybody cleared a path for me to get on the beltway. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to have any trouble getting on this beltway anymore, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a good time with that car. <laughs> His other big win and this really is perhaps his biggest victory on a racetrack, happened in what had been one of the slowest cars he'd owned. And he wasn't even supposed to race. I, I, I have an interesting story to tell you about my Beetle. I had a 1958, I think it was, Beetle. And uh, we were going to go down to Texas to visit a friend of mine who was in the Air Force. Well, we got to Dayton, Ohio, and by that time I was so tired of not being able to pass anybody. <laughs> I looked up some of my old friends in Dayton and I said, does anybody have some gear that'll soup this thing up to where I can at least pass somebody? And they said, well, there's so-and-so, he's got a supercharger. Get me in touch with him. So they did, and I bought the supercharger, and I worked overnight putting it on the car, and that car was just a terror. I mean, it, it was, you would, I could spin the tires from the standstill, you know, and take off. And uh, so we drove on to Texas then with that. We got someplace down in Texas, and we passed a drag strip. And uh, I pulled in there, and my wife said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to run the car. <laughs> we took all the baggage out of the car, took the seats out, and, and I ran the car. I was there all day long. I beat everybody except one car, a front-engine dragster. That Oldsmobile V8 engine in it. I mean, he was like a big freight train, and he went by me like a big freight train before the end of the quarter mile, you know. <laughs> but I won a trophy. We, at the end of the day, we put all my stuff back in the car, and uh, I never even bought gas that day. <laughs> Still ran on the, the one tank of gas that I had. We put all the stuff back in the car and drove to my friend's house. <laughs> there are more car stories, so many. But that's what life is. So many stories. And for a man like Jim, it could feel like you'd need an entire lifetime to tell them all. So we won't. Instead, when we come back, an update on where Jim is now and what lies ahead for the 93-year-old. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Jim Barber has owned a lot of cars. How many cars, if you had to estimate now, how many cars would you say you've owned in your lifetime? I have no idea. I, I've just owned so many. I, I, I mean, you name a car and I'll say, yeah, I've had one of those. Or I've had two or three of those. And uh, I've, just, I've just had so many cars, it's unreal. I've not kept track of them. I kept track of some of, like some models, like the Corvair, 14 Corvairs, 19 Alfa Romeos, three Porsches, uh, two Jaguars. I don't know how many Fords, Chryslers, Plymouths. How many Mercedes would you say you've had? Since 1950, I had one always until we had a little disagreement with Mercedes here. I'd always had at least one or two Mercedes at a time. Because you said there's no car you've you've owned more of than a Mercedes, right? right? That's the right. Let's hear about a few more cars. Well, the most exotic, of course, was the Ferrari Monte Cabriolet, and then I had a Cadillac Almonte, which is a two-passenger car made in Italy. Those two cars are probably self-doubt creeps in. Well, no, I had a Fossil Vega, that's a French car, which had a Chrysler drivetrain. Had a Palmasan gearbox, fast, plush, really a nice car. What about the Packard? Well, that's a different category of car. It was a 1934 eight cylinder coupe. It had wind up windows and uh, and a rumble seat. And then I had the 39 Cadillac Cabriolet, four door convertible. I had a Buick Limited, which was uh, a four door limousine. I had a 70 Challenger, uh, RTSE, and I had a Camaro. Uh, 68, I guess it was. All in, we figure on the modest estimate that Jim's owned about 300 cars in his lifetime. From standard stuff that would hardly turn your head to antique stuff that you would barely ever see outside of a museum, muscle cars, sports cars, exotics, luxury, you name it, he's owned it. I was keeping them for a while, and then one day I walked out of the back door of my house into the garage, and I saw all these cars, and I thought, gee... If the economy goes kaput, I'm really going to be stuck with all this iron, so I better get rid of it. <laughs> and I started selling the cars. I put an ad in the New York Times, and I uh, got calls from all over the country. People wanted to buy those cars, and I sold them. At the end of those initial few days I'd spent with Jim, I'd asked him if after all those cars, there was still some car he wished he could still drive, or at least ride in. He told me there was. A Cadillac CTSV, And it makes sense. It's plush and luxurious in the cabin, but under the hood, a massive supercharged V8 that puts out 640 horsepower. I included that detail in my essay, and almost immediately after it was published, professional race car driver and Pikes Peak record holder Rob Holland reached out. He'd long heard stories of Jim Barber, a man respected at racetracks all over North America. A minority in a white-dominated sport, Rob felt a kinship and admiration and wanted to help him make this dream come true. So did Cadillac, who offered up a CTSV telling Rob and I to name the time and place. And so we did. The world-famous Sebring International Raceway. There's video in those laps up on Jalopnik. I encourage you to watch it, even if nothing can really, truly capture the thrills that Jim experienced that day in the cockpit. I've spoken with Jim many times after that. A couple months ago, I even brought my family to the home he shares with his wife, Patricia. In that time, he shared with me some news that doesn't have to do too much with cars. I called him up right before this episode. Hello. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Good. I asked him if he'd like me to share some of those more private updates. 
Yes, he told me. He did. Well, I uh, found out uh, that I had uh, bladder cancer. And uh, that was a big surprise to me. And uh, then I, I went through six treatments of what they called infusion rather than uh, oh, what you call the other stuff, uh, chemo. Rather than chemo, I had infusions. Then when I went back to the doctor, I had a, a, a scope where he went in and looked and, and everything was very clean except one spot. And that one spot was red, so he said, wait two months, come back, we'll do another scope. And uh, if, if, ne if necessary, we'll do a biopsy. If it's still red, if it's not, well, we're in good shape. So we're in that two-month period now and uh, waiting to, to do that, see what, what happens. Now, this isn't the, uh, your, first, uh, your first battle with cancer, right? Right. I had prostate cancer, and uh, I got that very early as we did with his bladder cancer, so that's giving me hope. I asked Jim what his doctor's outlook is. He doesn't give me any. Mm. He's just uh, he's just going along one thing after another. One thing leads to another, and and he 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 just he doesn't he doesn't give me any uh, uh, prognosis. For his part, though, Jim's keeping it positive, just as he always has. I haven't had any pain or anything like that, that that's directly uh, attributed to the, uh, to the cancer. So I feel okay, and I'm just waiting for this two-month period to see uh, what, what the result is. He tells me that, like his biplane crash at Tuskegee, his spectacular at Marlboro, his prostate cancer, this is just one more obstacle to overcome. I believe him. And I think back to the fall of 2018, when after all his 300 cars were long gone, Jim still managed to get inside a CTSV and make one more dream come true. <laughs> yeah, I better wish for some more things, huh? I know. <laughs> and he does have a wish. Jim's been suffering lightheadedness from the meds he's on, but they're adjusting that. Having this, this illness uh, just puts a crimp in my lifestyle. <laughs> because I can't get out and do anything with cars. But if he can regain strength, Jim would like to go soloing again, the thing that used to be known as autocrossing. It isn't called autocrossing anymore. It's called solo. But in any event, I'd like to do that. That gives you a chance to exercise the car a little bit and exercise your own skill and uh, uh, just get your blood pressure going. And I mean, it's, it's fun. Fun. Jim Barber's experienced agonizing injuries and shameful prejudice and chuckled. He was parking Orville Wright's cars in the early 40s, owning a Texas Strip and a souped-up Beetle in the late 50s, smashing up a Sprite in the 60s, riding alongside Rob Holland in a CTSV 50 years later, and he never did any of it for a trophy, even if he did occasionally earn one. He did all of it for fun. So what's one more thing? Yeah, you might just see him out there yet. A living legend. Living. Thanks so much for listening to Tempest. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, David Obachowski. I also do the music along with my very good friend and collaborator, Kenny Appel. The theme song is by Distant Correspondent. A special thanks to Jim and Patricia Barber for letting me into their lives and their home. 
Thanks as well to Jalopnik and Rob Holland. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions or compelling car stories, I want to hear from you. Get me via email, tempest at tempestpodcast.com or find me on Twitter at Tempest Podcast, as well as at David O from NJ. That is David O from NJ as in New Jersey. Visit the show on the web, tempestpodcast.com. Thanks so much and see you next time.